Hello, everyone. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame, episode 34. I'm Jamie Berger, and so far they haven't shut down independent media, so the coup is not complete. So we will carry on. This week marks our year anniversary, and so in May we're going to have two episodes dedicated to that. The first today is a two-parter. It starts off with a coda to my George Saunders odyssey earlier this year. That's episode 27, in case you missed it. In February, a couple weeks after the George Saunders episode came out, I drove to Cambridge to see him read. And as I drove, I listened to the end of the wonderful audiobook version of Lincoln and the Bardo, and I found myself thinking of follow-up questions I had for George. And as I drove and I thought of these questions, I thought to myself, there's a very, there's a distinct decision I have to make today. And that is, do I concede or accept or indulge in the fact that I am not ever going to be buddies with George Saunders. If we lived in the same town, taught in the same department, you know, we might have a beer, but we don't. We have no reason to be friends. We had a friendly conversation. It felt great. Do I just accept that and that I am a fan and I always will be, which would mean at the end of the reading, I get in line with everybody else or I wait my turn and raise my hand, however they decide to do it, and I ask my questions from the audience as a fan? Or do I hope for something grander at a later time? The reading was great, and at the end of it, people were asked to line up in the center aisle of the church where the reading was held, if they had questions. And I didn't get up, and I didn't get up, and at the last second, I got up, and I was the second-to-last person before they cut off the line because too many people were joining it. And when it came my turn, I asked George a couple questions, and here's how it went. Jamie, I presume? George, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. We had spent like three hours on the phone the other day, really pleasurably. (laughs) Thank you. It it, it felt like that, but it was only an hour. It was only 20 (laughs) minutes. I have that effect on people. So maybe you can guess the kind of thing I'm going to ask you about. You've worked on this book for a long time, thought about it for years before that, and now you've had these last 10 days or so of heaps and heaps and heaps of praise. The general question is, how does that feel? And the more specific one is, okay, that was easy. And the more specific one is out in the world of these devices and media, people seem to be looking to you as more than just a writer this past week. As someone who, with your fierceness and kindness and humility, are being seen as kind of a... the Sex closest thing to that, oh, well, you've always been that. Yeah, yeah. But the closest thing to a 
yeah. anti-Trump straight white male. And I think people are really looking at you as more than just a writer. I'll like, take it. I will yeah. take it. But how did, yeah. do you yeah. feel it? And are you comfortable? I, I'm not, I don't, actually, I, I'm moving so fast. That, but yeah, yeah I'd, be, I'd be comfortable with that. I mean, I, you know, I, I think um, in this right now, can I read you a poem that explains how I feel? I, when I get stressed out in my life, I write Susian doggerel. And when, really, when I came back from Ed's wedding, I, the first thing I did was at a conference call, I wrote these really nervous Dr. Seuss poems. And my wife, after that head enhancing, she read them, and she was laughing from the other room. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, God, I finally got a, you know, a positive reaction after six years of showing my work to people. So I wrote these Dr. Seussian poems, and that kind of threw open a door for humor. But I, this is crap, but it's, it may, maybe it's not. Let's see. So here's a, here's a poem after Dr. Seuss. A fragile egomaniac has taken up the reins, obsessed with size, defensive, and unmoved by others' pains. He seems to think that saying A, while B is clearly true, will cause the truth of B to wane and make A true to you. He stomps his foot, and with his hand, he does that little chopper, (laughs) then calls all things amazing as he tells another whopper. (laughs) What is it that he wants so much? What wound must he assuage with all these lies and posturing and all that pent-up rage? When all is said and done, it seems the thing he wants is more, enough to finally satisfy some raging inner war. Everything's unfair to him, so sad, so overrated. Whatever gifts the world can give, insulting and belated. If some of you who voted for this vain and flailing man are noting now some meanness in his attitude and plan, It's fine. It's great. We welcome you. Please come on back and aid us in switching off the Kellyannes who nightly serenade us (laughs) with tricky sliding caveats and puzzling odd denials, with scary twisted Orwell riffs and sunny prom queen smiles. In other times and places, this dopey gong has sounded to claim that truth's negotiable and that we're all surrounded by enemies, by enemies, by horror and by hate, by refugees who want us dead and liberals sleeping late? (laughs) But what if in the end, my friends, what seems most true is true? The president is like himself and not like me and you. A famous guy for all these years, an ego in a bubble, who learned that great attention could be got by causing trouble. And craving said attention, scuttled out in its pursuit, the working man's defender in a fine Briani suit. Speak up. Rise up, correct, and shout. Be stubborn and satirical. Resist, rebuff, demand the truth. Be positive and lyrical. Your country needs you now for sure. Your country needs your power. It needs you like a fragile thing in some uncertain hour. For goodness, peace, and decency were never heaven sent. And each of us must now become our own alt-president. Thank you very much. A couple episodes from now, I'll be talking with our resident psychotherapist, Lois Parkinson, uh, about that experience a little more. But for now, let me just say that it was uh, gave me a tickle that George somehow knew who I was, and it didn't bother me at all that he quickly pivoted to his wonderful anti-Trump Susian doggerel that he's been 
finding a reason to read at, at many of the readings on the tour. In the very first episode of this podcast, I read to you about Ray Bradbury and being on both sides in his life of the wall of fame. The night of the George Saunders reading, I decided to stay on the far side of the wall and to concede that. And it is a concession. And we'll talk more about that in a couple episodes. The second part of today's show is just snippets from many of our 34 guests so far. And here they are. I'm recognized for the work that I do, which is tremendous, and less so for my, my being associated with a larger world of celebrity that right. people want to be a part of. And that didn't have to happen. I miss it. Right. But I also appreciate in order to maintain and cultivate and increase that level of fame, mm-hmm. it would have required a lot more work on fame than I was interested in. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I would think that, because we're different, I don't crave that kind of but I would think, in, like, say, in your neighborhood, you wouldn't want in Brooklyn. Why? I don't know, because I don't want people... Don't you to... like getting free drinks and tables at restaurants? That's true. I do. But the first day, like, I'd be up in a tree, mm-hmm. and it's a three-story house, I believe, and out of a window, Sharon Stone, I mean, I'm working on what I'm working on, I'm here, hi, Tim, and there's Sharon Stone, you know, it's just like, ah, it would <laughs> fall out of the tree. And uh, so, so she, yeah, yeah, that's really, you know, it's, it's uh, okay. It's a trip. So, yeah. you know, celebrities are like, you know, they're startling. They're yeah. startling. Well, George promised me that he would get Annie Duke to come and tell stories with us oh. on this tour. And we're going to sit right at this table because there was like a little yeah. table set up on the bus. We're going to sit right at this table. And we're going to play poker. But she's going to take all our money, but I'm not going to care because we're going to learn a lot about poker. Most people would say Kanye's Kanye and has achieved such a great level of success. If only I could achieve that level of success, I would finally be happy. Right. If the being happy is the, the achieving of this level of success and you think that that next level is going to get you happy, guess what? Yeah. You are already not going to be happy. You might as well just learn to be happy now. I, ha- I have to let myself enjoy it and realize that you can have uh, meaning in people's lives who you don't know. And, and that's, that's an, an interesting thing. It's not necessarily bad, you know? And um, you just have to sort of uh, go with it and both make sure you're both getting something out of it. That's where I would like to get. Like, I, in terms of, I don't know if I want to do anything specific or I want access to certain people. I just would like to be given the opportunity to make the things I want to make. Um, and if I could do that at a large scale, that'd be amazing. But I don't think that is in my, I don't think that's where this road leads necessarily, but it might, it might. You make something for people to see. People saw it. But that's not why I do it. I would do it even if no one was looking like Uh, I do it for me completely for me mm-hmm. as like a selfish need mm-hmm. to paint all the time or to make stuff. 
Well, so wait, can we talk about this? Because I'm interested. I mean, I feel like I'm a student of Mark Maron and to a lesser extent of, of Terry Gross um, and, and maybe of Jamie Berger. I'm not sure. Like everyone else, you know, if you say like, hello, I got into Sundance on Facebook to go mm-hmm. back to Facebook for a second, you're going to get like 500 likes in like yeah. 10 minutes, right? Yeah. And, but that's not really the thing. Like the, the real success was like getting the movie done mm-hmm. or like figuring out a major problem and solving it. It's all kind of like this much more inchoate, like private, inward facing process that's the thing it's like the reason i do what i do but then it looks to other people like the reason is the Mm -hmm. critical response or the reason is like the film forum premiere and it's not and so i think there's this again it's that sense of falseness one of the things that you know made me start thinking a lot about this book before i wrote it was this sense of feminism as something you kind of get as like a like a badge or a byproduct of your consumption of pop culture. One of the questions that I get asked a lot are variations like, are variations on a question like, uh, you know, can I do X and still be a feminist? Or what if I consider myself a feminist, but I still like Y? So to me, that's really interesting because it really is thinking about feminism as, as this kind of like static metric of quality rather than as something that is like a living, uh, evolving, ongoing, you know, ethic of living your life. As soon as someone finds out you play in a band, everyone wants to call you a rock star, which is, there's no equivalent to that in the writing world, you know? Um, Like, I think that there's a lot more, at least in terms of like, the public aspect, there's so much more of a fascination and sort of deification of musicians. I think there's like, I definitely appreciate that people like my work and I definitely appreciate a certain level of stuff, but I don't believe like someone would be like allowed to like drag me around a town for four hours Mm -hmm. meeting people. Like, I don't know. I don't know where like the, Mm -hmm. the line would be. So I definitely know know people who I see get overwhelmed by a level of sort of unusual intrusiveness that nobody would normally do except for they weirdly think is appropriate I guess if you're that they're entitled yeah because they're like like well, I think there's this idea of like I gave you your career or something I yeah. don't really know yeah it might be I mean again this is not yeah. that common yeah but I've certainly seen it where I think like oh like thank god that isn't me like that seems completely overwhelming the more specific you can be about who that audience is and in what way you want to connect with them, uh, the better a your writing's going to be, and more more you know to the point, your marketing's going to be. The more you're going to be able to communicate with that audience, and you're going to get more confident and be more um, sure of what you're doing if you think you know this is who I'm writing for. And I think you know another key thing that I figured out in the last year or so is like. Think about who you want to repel. Like, who do you who do you want to alienate <laughs> by what you're doing? And you know, who would you not care if they never looked at your thing ever? And if you do that, you can start to really put boundaries around what it is you are you do care about and who it is you are really pursuing. I will say I've compared notes with other 
journalists before, and there are some people who it's like a shade goes up at the beginning of the interview and then the shade goes down again at the end of the interview. It's like, and I think that that makes a lot of sense because if everybody, if you're famous and everyone wants a piece of you, I mean, that seems like a pretty understandable survival tactic also. So, but like, you know, um, it really depends on the person. Yeah, and uh, while simultaneously, like, showing us things like reality TV shows where, 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 like, you know, these people are famous but sort of exploiting themselves in order to become famous. And it's interesting to me that, like, fame is still so attractive when, like, that's what we're shown. But but also maybe I'm just viewing it through my particular, like, upper-middle-class white intellectual frame and can't see what other people who see that and want to be on reality TV shows see. I'm very pleased with the level of success that I'm at. And I think if you had told me when I was 14 and first learning to play guitar that I would be doing what I'm doing today, I would be so thrilled. I don't think I would think, oh, you haven't been in Rolling Stone yet. Like, ugh. I thought that's where we'd be, you know? <laughs> I think I would be psyched to hear that I had a band with my best friends and that I played, you know, several shows every month and that I have made, you know, two records. Well, that, that's the plus side of being the grounded realist that you are. Right. And you're like, I'm in a band with my friends and we make Right. We, we, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I know. It's true. That's great. Uh, I got a small part in a play, in a uh, movie with Janet Lee and Robert Mitchum. And there was another boy who had been cast to play Janet Lee's son. It was basically a co-starring role, a very big role. And I had this little bit, actually a deliberately non-speaking part. I was his silent friend from downstairs. And there were a couple jokes about Joey and silent Joey and Joey who never says anything. And uh, so I was, I was cast into that part. And apparently this, this young fellow uh, who had the lead role wasn't doing well. And um, after 10 days, they stopped filming and restarted with me in the lead role. And it's interesting because often I think back, I wonder what ever became of him, what, what he went on to do and whether that any, had any effect on his life at all. No, it comes from um, a Latin word for rumor. So it was more about talking about people behind their backs. And so that's how people get famous, because you're only famous when other people talk about you uh, kind of behind your back, and then they begin to make things up about you because they happen to care a little too much about <laughs> what's going on with you. And so then it gets tied to your imagination somehow, and you have to you know, um, build a whole other world based on this person existing. That's a big part of why I moved, because I think anonymity, which I suppose is the opposite of fame, is so valuable. And it's so such a beautiful thing to have that freedom where you can just wander around, you can be in your own head and nobody knows your business and that's what you miss out on, I think, 
when you um when that when you lose that um it's gone you know and I don't think people realize like for, for for some types of personalities that's like perfect for them um but I never enjoy it one of the strategies that actually um marketing people in particular some marketing people in Silicon Valley, a guy called Regis McKenna, in fact, I think was a pioneer of this, started to realize that the way that you can market and sell technology to the end user, to the consumers, is to um, personify the brand. So that Steve Jobs was actively marketed and, you know, he was, an image of him became... Um, important to the marketing and sales of the technology. You know, and, and no one in Hollywood is going to help you if, uh, if you fail. You know, there's not, you can't trust anyone. You can't depend on anyone. And, you know, and, th and that's, that's what it comes down to. And so I had no safety net and there was no one who was there to tell me that things were not going well. And, I went into the meeting and I just thought I could wing it, and I, I, which is stupid because I'd gone into meetings before very well prepared and I hadn't gotten big deals, but at least I'd walked out of there thinking, well, you know, I, you know, I, 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 I hit the ball, <laughs> you know, I didn't, I may not have hit a home run, but I, you know, whereas I, I just went in there and I, I literally, I, I might as well have just gone in, you know, wearing a pair of boxers shorts on my head, you know, I was that much of a buffoon. And, um, and nothing, and, and to me that even though I, I hung around in Hollywood for a few years after that, that was the beginning of the end. And it was the beginning of the end of what I would call my famous period as well, because I had a little run there in the aughts where I was, you know, famous writer to some extent. You know, my first book didn't even come out till I was like 36 or something, maybe even older. Uh, so, and, and it was, a uh, like a, nice literary hit. And then, so it was uh, a real long, almost like, you know, a, a period of getting used to what attention felt like and the different, you know, I mean, really it's like, I've said before, it's kind of like if you eat, you know, a big, you know, shit ton of, of beans, you're going to get farty. That, that's not, that's not on you. That's not you. It's, it's, you don't have a character defect. So I think if you get attention of any kind, and you can see this even on your birthday, you know, even the day after your birthday, you were kind of pissy, you know. So I think this whole thing is you take you get attention uh, and it makes you a little full of shit that that is going to happen. So when it happens the way it did for me, like just very, very slowly or about a 20 year period, you get a little more, a little more. You kind of get in touch with the phenomenon. You're like, OK, so I've just been praised. I'm a little full of myself. I've just been criticized. I'm ready to jump off a cliff. Uh, and it comes in, it's almost like inoculation. It comes in small doses. And by this time, you know, I, I'm, at least I'm aware that it's a potential problem. My, my idea at this point in my life of an ideal fame, if you want to call it that, would be that I had a engaged enough fan base that when I put out something, I didn't have to sell it, that they would be excited and that they would know about it by nature of me mentioning it or that they were, you know what I mean? I, it, yes. It, 
so 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 I guess I'm saying my level of fame is when I get to stop being a, a, a self promoter. Can I tell you this? My concern in life is not how people view me. It's how I've made them feel. And it's all because, you know, I owe it all to Maya Angelou. She's got that quote, and I think I'm taking it out of context, but part of her quote is, people won't remember the things you said. They won't remember the things you did. They remember how you made them feel. And I think that if I'm interacting with people, I care more, I care less about what do they think about me and more of how, you know, are they, are they comfortable with themselves? Do they feel like they matter? Do they know that that they're okay. You know, I just, for some reason, it's just so much more important to me than, I mean, that gives me a better feeling than, oh, they really were impressed by that joke I told. I remember doing a show like years ago, I did this elaborate, I probably even told you the story, elaborate puppet show and everything with all this pre-recorded stuff. And it was like, oh, just one of the highlights of my life. And it was a lot of people there and it was fun and great. And I felt a great success. And this woman came up after me and she goes, man, that was great. You ought to go for it. Like, what? Go for what? I just, I'm exhausted. I just went for it. Did you not witness that? I could die tomorrow. What is this? What is this far off it that I'm supposed to go for? I don't even understand. A lot of people who I've talked to don't like to even think about what they do. They're like, well, it's not really fame. I'm like, yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. If you're making something public, there's there's an aspect. There's definitely that feeling of like, yeah, you're talking to the wrong guy, barking up the wrong tree. There's yeah. no fame here. But <laughs> nothing to see here. Yeah, nothing to I, see here. Just <laughs> I do feel like in our family, there was definitely importance put on fame. Like, it was exciting if you saw a famous person. Mm-hmm. And, in you all, know, yeah, obviously, famous, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, my I feel like my grandpa really liked to name drop, like... Oh, and I used to take walks on the beach with Tony Randall, you know, and like, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, which is really sweet. That's great. Yeah, because they have a house on Fire Island, so it's like got that mix of like, you know, celebrities and blue collar Long Islanders. But at the same time, in my family, you weren't supposed to want it. Right. Right. But the, what the whole world's telling you, it's it's like... It's value. Yeah. It's a value. Yeah. Thank you so much to Year One guests John Hodgman, Tim Lockfeld, Mark Berger, Case Hudson, Annie Duke, Lois Parkinson, Monty Belmonte, Hardy White, Matthew Letkowitz, Soren Mason Temple and Dave Rothstein, Dan Oppenheimer, Penny Lane, Andy Zeisler, Sarah Jaffe, Eugene Merman, Jessica Abel, Anya Schutz, Lindsay Mace, Anjali Milani, uh, Andrew Leland, Tina Antolini, Nora Murphy, Gordon Giebert, Cameron Bossert, Maeve Higgins, David Brock, Neil Pollock, George Saunders, Shanali Bomick, Tom Papalardo, Abby Crutchfield, and Matt and Kate Lorenz. You can find all of those episodes by going to 15minutesjamieberger.com. That's 1-5-M-I-N-U-T-E-S-J-A-M-I-E-B-E-R-G-E-R.com or by searching for us anywhere that podcasts are casted. As ever, thank you to Devin for his voice, to Christian Kandari for making our music, and to Ed Patnode for being the engineer who makes whatever I send him sound way better than it did when I sent it to him. This is 15 Minutes. I'm Jamie Berger.